you're just like you use the term fantasy. You're fantasizing about that's what a that's what normal neurotic subjects do, right? They fantasize mm-hmm. about the other's desire and they miss it. But yeah. the psychotic can get it right, I think, which is something terrifying. Everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain, more curious life. I'm Scott, and I'm Mace, and I'm Reuven. Yay! <laughs> Reuven with us. I have a little bit of a hoarse voice too. I don't know if that's coming across. Nay. Uh, uh, get your booster shots. <laughs> okay. Get your booster shots. Get your booster shots, everybody. Yes. Hey, uh, get excited for a very special episode today—a uh, Christmas episode okay. that we're mm-hmm. titling, I think, "Christmas and Desire." Yes, and yes. it really is not like a typical Christmas episode, but more just pondering about the symbolic meaning of Christmas and gifts and desire and many, many other full tangents. Yeah, I think it's a Christmas episode in the sense that it's a gift. It's a present. Ooh. Yeah. Okay, yes. Reuben. I like that. <laughs> We're gifting you. Merry Christmas. Everybody. Merry Christmas, everyone. Or, or whatever you celebrate. <laughs> ha- Merry, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, this gift has no theology attached to it, so that's, that's nice. Yeah. And we are... Universal gift. Folks, it's not just the three of us on this episode. We are here introducing, actually, that we had Todd McGowan on the podcast, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Yes, let me just read a quick bio so everybody yeah. can get their bearings, and then we'll just talk about what we like about Todd McGowan. Uh, Todd McGowan, born in 1967. This is just straight from Wikipedia, everybody. He's an American <laughs> professor of English at the University of Vermont, where he teaches film and cultural theory. He works on Hegel, psychoanalysis, and existentialism, and the intersection of these lines of thought with the cinema. McGowan is the author of more than 15 books, editor of Film Theory and Practice Series, Northwestern University Press with Slavo Zizek. Mm-hmm. And it's a dream of ours maybe someday to have <laughs> to Slavo Zizek on, on the podcast. <laughs> That'll be, yeah. Uh, McGowan's work has been described as a politics of death drive. Uh-huh. Wow. What a thought. Yeah. I wonder how he feels about uh, that. So... Uh, let me just say, I got to spend some time with Tom McGowan in Belfast, which is a wonderful thing. And he was talking about his book called uh, Con- Conversion. And is, it, is it Capitalism Conversion? Capitalism and Desire. Desire. Which is where Desire. Christmas and Desire, Christmas and Desire comes, from. comes from. That's yeah. the reference. And so I've known about Todd McGowan, although uh, like his content and concepts are slightly out of reach for me. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I really like what he has to say, and I like his personality, and also I'm not so deep in... You're in not a film so critic academic? I'm always just sort of reaching... Hey, Hegelian, yeah, psychoanalytic. But in the house recently, Reuven has been listening to Why Theory, which is Todd McGowan's podcast, so he's been walking around going, Todd McGowan, Todd McGowan. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I, I bet we could get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I wonder why it doesn't say there that he's co-host of Y yeah. Theory. I feel like that's probably yeah, that's a pretty strong. I think in their last episode they say that like uh, they have listeners in ninety six countries. Wow. I feel like that's probably that's a lot. Yeah, I feel like I someone. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no, we we've had some really random series of different countries that were like, why is this their our top yeah. country mm-hmm. over the United States sometimes? Yeah. Uh, 
odd. But uh, yeah, so I mean, Tom McGowan. I mean, what does he? How would we describe him with our words? Well, what, what I mean, what what got you into Y theory, Ruben? Oh, that's right. We're talking about them. Uh, well, actually, I was, I actually, <laughs> I was not familiar. I mean, you know, I, I, of course, have been familiar with the works of Zizek for, for a while, but I actually found Y, the- Todd McGowan through Y Theory. And it's because I was looking for an interview with, like, uh, this other person named Anna Cornblue, which is, uh, oh, gosh, do we want to, inter- I mean, she's, I love her, but, um, but, uh, but she, I mean, the way she writes is so different than 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 McG- Todd McGowan. But, and I I found an interview with her, which is great. It's called Immediacy on Y Theory. And then I just started listening to all of the other a- episodes, uh, and I actually emailed him once uh, about sort of the 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 just just about the podcast. And he was super nice. He just wrote yeah. back, and you know, um, and I'll, uh, so I. Don't really have a per. I don't have. I've never met him in person. This interview was the first time we ever talked in person. Well, I guess directly. Uh, but I've read a couple of his books. I've read uh, Emancipation After Hegel and Capitalism and Desire, and I and I love both of them. Yeah, we had a really fun time yeah. because Tom McGowan brought with him honestly, truly, no small thing vibes. It was mm-hmm. lesser, more curious the whole time. We go on tangents. He totally was happy to just go Super down the. The, the biggest side rails, but it all was, you know, fascinating. We're all kind of bringing our own different thoughts. You know, I, I tried to bring some Winnicott thoughts in there and he totally just played right with them yeah, and mm-hmm. came, you know, it was really fun. And uh, I think, I feel like this has the vibes of just a classic, no small thing. We, we were learning as we were conversing. He's like a, a playful, non-pretentious academic. Like, he, yeah, he's obviously so smart, but he also just really easy to be around easy to talk to he's not condescending which is maybe another you know reason why why theory i mean that's his whole kind of point it seems like is to kind of Mm -hmm. make theory and academia more accessible of sorts Mm -hmm. and i think even he it sounded like during the conversation was like i wouldn't even really separate psychoanalysis from theory of sorts right no yeah no he's i mean he definitely is like sort of uh within that line of like you know like people like zizek who's kind of like seeing psychoanalysis as a an extension of critical theory but i i feel like what what, what's also what also bears emphasizing is that the way he writes is also the way he talks so like in his uh in Y theory, he he and his co-host Ryan Engley, who's also incredibly nice, and I really like him. And maybe we should also we have, should him, have on him on the pod. I mean, Todd said yeah. he'd come back, so yeah. it's like yeah. it'd be fun yeah. to have them both yeah. come. Yeah. Uh, he, um, they always define their concepts. They always give you know give examples. They always have these jokes. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't think they've they they started they didn't start doing this from the very first episode but they would always say like you know at the end of the episode they would always have their lessons right like yeah, 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 lesson today really is like and it would always be like it, it it i think at one point they were kind of like the lesson is to listen to uh, abba's waterloo <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> yeah, yeah and yeah. so it's it's always it's always great but also like the way he writes his books i mean his even his i mean if you can write a book about hegel that that's like people who probably don't have like two you know, are not too deeply versed in critical theory or German idealism. Like, you can understand emancipation after Hegel. And that's a book about Hegel. 
<laughs> Although I feel a like very yeah. challenging philosopher to wrap your head around. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, people say like Zizek is 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 you know very sort of like uh, approachable, and you know his talks are are always kind of like interesting to listen to. But even in his books, even if he has all these jokes, the way he, he still writes within the jargon of theory. Yeah. I mean, okay, maybe jargon is like, within the vocabulary of theory. Mm. He's still hard to read. Mm. That McGowan is, Todd McGowan is like, he, he's not hard to read. That's really, yeah. that's really nice. And, and I think he's, he said in the podcast that he, in this episode, he, that he goes out of his way to use everyday language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just so nice that you can have a person that's super into Lacan and Hegel and psychoanalysis. And then when asked what his favorite Christmas movie is, it's like, Girlfriends of Christmas Past. It's like not ghosts of girlfriends past. Yeah, I never heard of that. You know, it's not. It's like it's it's not even precious or pretentious with movie choices. I mean, I'm sure he has those too, but mm-hmm. not no no shame in saying that's one of his favorite movies. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so it was just fun. I mean, we used Christmas as a springboard mm-hmm. to start the conversation, but then it just went everywhere. So it was really fun. I hope you guys have fun listening to this. Do you want to have any final thoughts, Meg? Um, no, I mean, just classic me. I'm like, I'm feeling <laughs> like Christmas is like such a beholden, like Western concept. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's part of just the water we're living in. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> what are you talking about? I celebrated Christmas growing up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah all right. Well, yeah, too. I mean, it was so funny when he was like, really admitted that like Christmas afternoon was the one of the saddest times of the year for him yeah um, no as I was, I was referring to it's like it's not i mean okay what i mean is that even a west i mean jesus I christ know. was born in palestine right yeah, yeah. <laughs> right 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 a western thing. yeah i mean i know i know what you mean yeah, yeah i guess but. yeah it's just like a a certain kind of uh emphasis on christmas as the standard in terms of this kind of conversation it's like there's so much more around all of this the standard yeah <laughs> The reference point, the, the standard, the, topic. the standard winter holiday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I would say then, you know, if Christmas is well, I don't know. Well, you know, if Christmas is maybe a little too particular, I'll tell you what's not particular at all is capitalism because yes, we all live yes, in it, we do. right, in different ways. So I guess is it okay to give you give my final thought? Yeah, Please, yeah. no. That's well, I mean, I, I just gave my final okay. thought and it was rogue. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> no, I, I think all I was going to say is like uh, I don't know, read read. Capitalism and Desire. By yeah, McAllen. Christmas and yeah. Desire, Capitalism, capitalism and, desire. and Desire. I think that would be, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's very readable. It's funny. It has a lot of examples. It's, you know, you don't even have to, you, you know, you can, it's one of those books where you're like different chapters of different themes and you don't have to necessarily read all of them yeah. at once. It's a great book. My final thought would be Todd McGowan seems to me to be one of many people, but a very significant person for me that I would say uh, a sort of energy or aura or life force or something that I would want to head towards as an aging person. Totally. He had a, a really, a really good aura and energy. Yeah. It was he said like, again, I was like, you just seem full of wonder. And he was like, oh yeah, oh, I'm full of wonder. And he, and he wasn't <laughs> like wonder. That's a cheesy word. You know, he was just like, oh yeah, 
<laughs> like I have a hard time sleeping. I'm, I'm writing so much and thinking so much. I seem so interested in you life. Know? In yeah. life, exactly. So, yeah. Oh, we really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Yeah. Uh, hope you enjoy Todd McGowan. Um, Merry holidays and whatever it is you're doing this season. Yeah. And all the things and peace yeah. on the planet. Peace on the planet. I always and say have a restful break. That's what I always say. Have a restful break. It's like it's a break. Give yourself a break. Something happening in your life. Be part of your rest. Yeah, yeah. and um, may there be peace on this earth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi, Todd. Hi, Scott. It's so nice to have you here, and I think this is being inspired by your most recent episode on Christmas in the movies, but you did say something in passing that got me thinking about something we talk a lot about, and it was this idea that... Um, getting exactly what you want for Christmas. Cause you were talking about Ralphie um, yeah. getting exactly what you want for Christmas is the worst thing imaginable. And it got us thinking about the lost objects and stuff like that. But uh, what, what, what were you thinking of when you said that? Cause I, I was like, I wish you would say a little bit more about that just for fun. Oh yeah. So just in context. So it was, it was about the, the movie, a Christmas story. And Ralphie dreams about this, uh, this gun that he wants to get. And then he get his father, he opens all his other presents. He doesn't seem like he has it. And then finally, his father's like, what's that in the corner? And it's, it's the gun. And he gets this. And, and he says, and I think this is the worst part of that movie. He says, it was the perfect, perfect present. I got it was the best Christmas ever. I got exactly what I wanted. And I guess what I was thinking about is this distinction between uh, what drives you to desire something and then what you enjoy about the way you desire it and then the object of your desire. So I think that, and that's a distinction that Lacan, who I'm indebted to in certain ways, is is real. It's really important for him that distinction, and I think it's a, that's maybe his best idea, his most important contribution, that distinction. And and so I think that film acts as, and I think that's the one of the fundamental ways that ideology works to try to break down, to try to convince, especially under capitalism, to try to convince us that actually know what we really do desire is what really satisfies us is the object of our desire. And so we get that and then it's great. And then of course that doesn't happen. So we get a constant series of disappointments and then we have to look, if we don't think about the, that distinction, then we look for other objects of desire. Mm-hmm. And we think, well, that must be, the problem must be the object, not with the way that I conceive of desire. Right. So I think that's the, then that's what I, I found most troubling about that film i guess <laughs> yeah it's it's almost uh, I, I i don't think it was in that episode but and you know i listened to the uh to white theory episodes in such a random order that but i think i remember you one time saying that like you know the the saddest day of the year is like the afternoon on a christmas on christmas because that's when you realize like none of these gifts that i have been waiting for so eagerly these past few months actually satisfy me <laughs> Yeah, that, I, that, that was actually from my own personal experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like as a kid, that's how I always felt. I would get into a terrible depression, like a, yeah. like a weeping kind of terrible depression. Oh, and, uh, and, and it's funny because my kids, both my boys are Jewish. And so, and they think Hanukkah basically sucks relative to Christmas. They're like, it's not as cool and it's like spread out. You don't get the one day. And, but the, the best thing is they don't have that, they're always like there's another day and they don't expect a lot so you just get one thing each day and 
not ever that great. And so there's a kind of lowered expectations. And I think it's in a certain way better. But that, yeah, I think that that, what is that depression? It's like the the, the recognition that 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 ob that distinction between the two forms of object, right? Like that object that drives your desire, that causes your desire, and then the object of your desire. And you're stuck with just the object of your desire because that other thing is gone. I mean, the object that causes your desire is, let's say it's like in this example, let's say it's like the wrapping paper, right? Or 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 Christmas Eve mm. itself, right? It's a temporal thing. And I think that's why Christmas Eve is so exciting for kids, right? Because it's a in a way, that's the object, right? Like that, mm. that, that, and once you traverse that thing, then you're all you're stuck with is just the object of desire. And I think it's you've lost the very thing that makes it desirable. Mm. There's no way to name it either, because I relate to that so much as a kid. But I have kids now that are 17 and 19 and have experienced tons of Christmases with them. And um, you're you're almost spending the rest of Christmas Day in this zombie-like stupor where you got what you wanted and there's just no name. There's no way to name the feeling. Cause everybody's like, it's the best day of the year. We're still, ha it's Christmas. And you're like, I know, but why do I feel so shitty? Like <laughs> there's just no yeah. way to talk about it. Well, no, yeah, up until no, now, up until this podcast. No, that's absolutely true, Scott. I think it's absolutely true. And even, I think the other thing is I don't think it helps so much talking about it. Right. Like I don't think, yeah. because, right. So there's this constant, uh, enforced cheer on like you know it's mm -hmm. the best day you know like what you're just saying uh but it doesn't really solve that that problem i don't think and, and so like the because it's i think because it's a you feel like that this that you're this there's this mismatch between where you think your satisfaction is going to lie and where it actually did lie and that that has to be a realigned and i think realigning that is painful right it's there's something traumatic about that so I think there's really no way to just give it a signifier and make it better, which is frustrating to parents. I think, right? Like they, like my mom found it very frustrating. She'd say, "What can I do?" And I, and then, but there was nothing she could do, right? So. Oh man, just gotta embrace that. Just gotta embrace that void. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I was wondering. Or, you know what I was thinking? Like, like that's what's better about, uh, like reading Hegel than opening Christmas presents because like the, the, the object res it remains, right? Like, because it's so recalcitrant, so hard to get what he's really getting at. So you're, even though, even when you think you get it, there's always something that you don't fully get. And I think that's the, that's what, so it'd be like a package that sort of always still got a little wrapping stuff yeah. stuck on yeah. it. Right. Like that would be, or, or I think, I mean, the better example, the Hegel thing was kind of me playing around, but like the better <laughs> example would be a relationship, right? Because, there's something about the person and what you're in love with the person is always going to be uh, resistant to your, what mm -hmm. your way, your access to that person. Right. So I think that that's, that's what's better about being in love than opening Christmas presents. Right. Because it, there's always something that remains unopened and that that's the thing that you're, that you're really drawn to. And they, like they, and, and they could reveal it to you because they don't even know it about themselves. So I think it's, I think that's a, that's, that's that's why there is a way to kind of move beyond and i think it's to move to away from things right to another person mm. Dang, that's capitalism Ruben. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I mean it's uh well two things came to my mind first of all i was like i i like buying presents for people and i think it's precise for the reason because you get to experience the 
desire right of like i want want to buy something but then you don't you don't really other people you're basically gifting them disappointments (laughs) because you're because you're like here's a present for you i get to have the thrill of like seeking for it and and you know and like finding the right one but i don't get disappointed because i get to pretend that other people like the present that i buy right right there you're right and that's why i think this whole like better to give than received uh truism Mm -hmm. right like that's Mm -hmm. where it comes from and i think what's better about it is that it's very it's great you're what you just said because i think it's exactly right that you you can't you don't experience the reality of the disappointment when you're giving the present right because you can you're just when you buy the present you're just imagining what's the desire of the other right like it's just just all fantasy (laughs) right it's all fantasy right like you're just fantasizing what's the desire of the other and i think like i I bought for my spouse. She always likes wine glasses, and so and, there, and she's always breaking them. So I bought these really nice ones, and I thought, well, it's the good for the last night of Hanukkah. And I'm like, this is a perfect. And she gets it. She's she was very appreciative, but it was still. So I actually did feel a little disappointed. Yeah. I didn't, it wasn't like the like, oh my god. It was like great, but there was still kind of like a little something missing. So I because I think the the fear is that you have it correctly interpreted their desire right or or Mm -hmm. fantasized what their desire is and so Mm -hmm. there's maybe and i think so you're right you can't be disappointed in the way that when you open your own presence but there is this other kind of thing where you're like well did i hit the mark or not and i think you can never i think you can't ever hit the mark right like that's the point which is is what what is what's inherently like if you think about it that way then you're going to be disappointed on either side i i think what this brings to mind is i've historically always felt very minorly disappointed in my Christmas gifts. And there is this piece where it's just constant, like, you don't know me, you know, that feeling of like, oh, if the the mark is missed by, you know, like a significant family member, there's like this, you don't know me, but there's probably something where it's like, it always will be a miss. Right. So, so instead of being so concerned about it, just assuming this person's not going to fully get it. Right, and I think it, that I can appreciate yeah. what this is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and I think that, but that feeling is the problem is right that it, it can, it can be right. Like it can be you. Can, they can miss in a certain way that you're like you've missed it in a way that shows you don't get me at all, right? Yeah. And then then and so then I think you're right to say like someone can get you the wrong thing, and you can say like, look, this person, I really shouldn't be as invested in them as I as i am because they really don't get but i think your your other point is really true that you you can't there's no way to feel like they got me perfectly because right like like if they did you i I don't know you would i think there would be something even worse about that right because i think that's a little how could you know and i didn't you know it's there has to be an element i didn't even know right i didn't even know exactly Right, right right it would be uncanny i think that's would be a good yeah, like that term yeah. From Freud, the uncanny, Unheimlich, yeah. right? Like, I think that would be a good instance of that, where they like it, it like you probably would not want even less to do with them than if they missed totally, <laughs> if they hit it perfectly. That's it's true. Like, I don't want to be true. Yeah. Like, yeah. Person, like, there is something, you know, psychotic <laughs> about that. Because, it would be I like, mean, I think, yeah. I think like neurosis is like getting the wrong present. Like, that's mm-hmm. what it is. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you're because you're, you're just like use the term fantasy, you're fantasizing about that's what a, that's what normal neurotic subjects do, right? They fantasize mm-hmm. about the other's desire and they miss it. But yeah. the psychotic can get it 
right, I think, which is something terrifying. It's mm-hmm. almost, yeah. I don't know why this came to my mind, but it's almost like our phones listening into us. And then you see that I was talking about Todd McGowan and all of a sudden Todd McGowan, why theory is up on my phone. It's like too yeah. precise. You're like, are you stalking me? Like <laughs> what yeah. is going on here? Right. No, I think that that's really, and I think we're getting more and more used to that kind of thing happening because of the technological thing. And I think that's a, it's really fascinating because on the one hand, the technology is just a, it's like we're confronted with so much mediation, right? Like it's just a mm-hmm. symbolic nightmare. But but on the other hand, it does have this like bypassing of me. It's like this psychotic, it like gets right to the heart of what your desire is in a, this psychotic way. So I think that that's a terrifying part of, that's oh, to me the most terrifying part of the thing. Yeah. Right? But, and although, you know, what's funny to me is how often I get on Amazon or whatever book recommendations. And I'm like, would you even... Like work of a better algorithm. Like that doesn't, yeah. you haven't interpreted <laughs> yeah. my desire at all. It's like what you said about the present. Like I feel that's... that way about Amazon. Like you just, you're not getting me the right You're not getting me at all if you think yeah. I'm going to. Yeah. So I think there, it's both ways, right? Like both mm-hmm. things are disturbing. The one that the algorithm's not, is terrible. And the other one that it just hits too, that we're being seen a little bit too, too much. Well, what comes to mind is, you know, kind of, development and this is kind of taking a realm out of uh, lacanian theory and more in object relations zone but kind of this idea of you know the omnipotent fantasy and winnicott talks about this idea of like a perfect mother is terrifying like that's that's actually not good for us and so this idea of like staying in the omnipotent fantasy you know getting the ad exactly of what you were just thinking kind of keeps you stuck in this kind of uh zone where the external is not actually, you know, something that's complex, interactive and chaotic. It's this omnipotent, you know, smooth, you know, perfect mirror that we don't actually get to interact with. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. I think it's really true. And I think we're, that happens, it seems to me more and more, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. this sense of like, there's no, this is how I would put it. Like there's no lack in the other, right? Like there's no sense of the other being uh, that's very scary it's terrifying <laughs> and i also think it's interestingly linked don't you think to the phenomenon of the helicopter parent that's always there to do everything for the child like like it's it's like there's a technological version of that and then there's mm-hmm. this like uh, actual flesh and blood parental version of it so i think and both of i think are equally terrifying uh yeah like it's it's like uh so lacan talks about the this too perfect mother as he says it's the it's the jaws of the crocodile and you're the yeah. one like stuck <laughs> in the jaws and i think that's true i mean because you get it like the, you don't feel like there's anything you can do because the other is too omnipotent and and flawless right and i think that that's i think that's a that's it's interesting i think in a way that's that seems to be one of the major uh political difficulties today that doesn't really get so much talked about I think Mm -hmm. because everyone talks about narcissism right like everyone talks about you know all the way back from 1979 Christopher Lash culture of narcissism Donald Trump analyzes narcissism everybody's like everyone's stuck on their screen they're just a narcissist but I think isn't the other phenomenon which to me much more interesting that there's this idea that the other is is complete Mm-hmm, and, and that, mm-hmm. you know, and is and is and is flawless, and is there's nothing. There's, it's not chaotic in the way you're just saying, right? Like that this, uh, and I think that that see to me that's a much more oppressive phenomenon than the, than whatever proliferation of narcissism. 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nar- narcissism is trending. Everybody wants to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, they do. I know. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's really true. No, the only thing that is going on in my head is like, oh, Amazon is read- taking your words literally. It's not reading your desire. <laughs> no, I think that's really true. I think that's really true. I think that Amazon has not, even though they sell it, I don't yeah. think they've read Joan Kopchick's book, book read, read My, my desire. desire. Right, because I don't think they try to read the desire desire and i think they it's done because they would actually sell more whatever at least to me if they tried to read my desire a little bit but yeah i think you're right like the difference between like taking what you do literally just like you said like i say the word somebody's name and then that thing pops up like that's literal like but instead like read their desire like oh i heard the name that and there's a new book out by anna cornblue who's his friend uh that's what we're going to advertise to you like but that never happens because I don't want to buy the thing I just talked about. That's too creepy, you know. Right, 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 right. right. And plus, I already know if I want to buy it or not. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good. It's a stupid uh, marketing campaign. I think the two of you are really into these deep cuts of academia, like you knowing the niche book that only ten people are going to know about. (laughs) Like amazing. You know what I? I mean, well, I, I mean, so I, you know, I. I, I actually have only read like bits of Lacan, like, you know, like the mirror stage, which, you know, is like a, uh, I know that you, you're kind of annoyed that that that's the one that gets yeah. anthologized because yeah. it's like his early work. Like it's like years before he even started his seminars. Right. Right. Correct. But I, you know, I, 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 I like to say, you know, I, I, I've read Lacanians. I might not have read. So like, you know, I've read, I've read. Well, you. I think that's the proper Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I once taught a class on Lacan, and I taught zero Lacan. Oh, really? It was like, it was like Lacan, and we did Joan Kopchak, we did Slavoj Zizek, we did a bunch of people. No, zero Lacan. And then uh, one semester ago, I taught a class where I'm like, okay, these students have been, we have a lot of professors here that do like psychoanalytic stuff. I'm going to do a more advanced class. And I did a class on where we read three Lacan seminars. Total disaster. The <laughs> class that I did where we know no look on it was great. This yeah, because total disaster. You can't have the actual thing. It's like yeah. Christmas morning. No, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's really, I mean, it's just it's just so needlessly hard, I think, for people. Yeah. It's just need and it's not it's not it's not for any kind of like oh deep reason, I don't think I mean that's I think meta, wants- as we're talking, because I'm like I, I that's the meme. I mean, if, if there are some deep cut Lacanian memes on Instagram and stuff like that. And it's like, that is the meme is like, uh, to read Lacan is to not get Lacan. And I feel like I'm going to keep that as a lost object my entire life. Like I will die not <laughs> reading. Having Lacan. Lacan. Yeah. I think that's good. I am like, I'm someone who, as I said, is very indebted to him, but I did. I just think don't, I would never advise anyone. Unless someone said, like, look, I read blah, 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 blah. Now I want to read some actual. Then I'd say, okay, there's a certain thing. It would be zero. I would never advise anyone to read the writings, like Mirror Stage or any of the writing things. Like the the oral seminars. Just overwhelmed? Were your students just Yeah, they just just didn't read. They just started to read, and they're like, I just don't get it. I'm not reading. There were like two or three students, like 35 students in the class. Like two or three did the reading. And the rest started, and then they're like, this is hopeless. I don't yeah. understand. And then they're like, well, I come to class, and I really get it when you explain it. They all yeah. said, I'm like, okay, but that, that was stupid. I was just wasting your time with the, the, that reading. And then, you know, I just was, <laughs> it was dumb. It was just dumb. I'm never doing it again. So. <laughs> no, but I, it's, it's just because, like, 
it's almost kind of like you know like like Khan's like difficulty is a setup for like I mean you write so clearly and so like lucidly that I, I was actually telling me this morning like I think like Emancipation After Hegel is like the, probably the easiest book on Hegel but also like the best I hope so. That's very nice. That last part, but I, I hope it's the easiest part. Easiest because I just find that I just I, I I have to say I just hate it more than anything. And when I'm, if if you think that my writing is clear, it's because I'm trying to make it clear. That's the only way I can understand it. Mm-hmm. Like I don't understand all that gobbledygook. I have to break it down into like the main to a clear statement, and then I'm like, okay, now I yeah, I get, get it. Yeah. So yeah, I just can't. I I just I hate that kind of crap. And I like. This is one thing I like about Hegel relative to Lacan. Hegel never invented a single word. So what mm-hmm. Hegel would do is say, oh, you know, when we use the word reason, what we really mean is this other, th- what we really mean is, oh, it, this is the way we desire in our thinking, right? So that's like, we normally would usually think that about reason, but Hegel thinks that. So he like redefines terms, mm. but they're normal terms, like reason and the term is Vernunft in German, reason, it's reason. It's on a, it's on a, but Lacan probably, there's a whole, you can buy a, I think it's only in French, but you can buy a book of so, all the terms Lacan invented and then they're defined. Oh, just, I think that's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's just crazy. Like, who cares? <laughs> and like, you, the problem is that then you got to be like a, a devotee, like a disciple in right. order to make sense of it. But you should be, a, you should have a thought that people can make sense of it in order to dismiss it. Like, that's, that's what it means to be like in a, group of people thinking right like some I love that. like you're not not everybody's gonna like you and they have to be able to get you and then say okay i think that that's wrong right yeah. and if you're but if you have this whole like private language then then you can outsiders are cut out and he did it on purpose he did it on absolute on purpose what a punk <laughs> i mean reuven has a joke in a theory that every academic is stemming from one french philosopher whether it's a derrida or deleuze or foucault use no. your poison i guess you know i you know i've been in the english department for like a few years now so i feel like whenever i run into people and they say like i'm more of this person i'm like no i think you can like make a map where it's like are you like a lacanian a deridian are you a deleuzian are you like <laughs> and you can be like okay these are you know i mean you know i'm in a Cultural studies department. So there are like a bunch of Foucault. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I don't think that's wrong. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a real, uh, but just because there, I mean, not because of a bad thing about those people, but just because uh, I think there are certain kinds of ways. I think it's true maybe of everyone. Like, I don't think they invented those things, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there's certain like perspectives one can take up on the world and existence. And then they're, they're kind of basic ones are kind of limited. And so I don't know. Maybe there's not more than four. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's maybe it's it's like, yeah, those are just like the eponyms for them, right? Like yeah. they're the like who cares what they? I mean, Derrida might not have existed, but then there's still like sophistry. You know, like is how much is Derrida not not a sophist? Well, I don't know. Like oh, there's a kind true. of yeah. real like Plato was arguing with like Hegel and Derrida was already Plato and. Gordius, right? Like it's it's already the same kind of, I mean, I'm not trying to say modernity doesn't introduce things that are radically different, but I just think that certain positions are just, they're just, that's what you have to take up and, and you just have certain names attached to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is this now a good time to 
talk about like public private do it <laughs> go for it <laughs> okay. you mentioned uh, this is not a good time right <laughs> no, because uh you mentioned uh you know like having a private language as opposed to having sort of like a public words that are you that yeah, everyone yeah. can take up my favorite thing is like whenever you read a mari rudy book she always say like the french my ideas are coming from the french psychoanalyst jacques lacan as if like no one knew that coming into her book but I, you know yeah. but she, that's her whole thing right she's kind of like i'm exasperated that these ideas they're actually helpful are couched in such like an arcane language that no one can get absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She and I totally shared that. And I I was sad for personal reasons when she died, but that that was I was sad that that voice was out of the mm -hmm. like another person doing that was out of mm -hmm. circulation. I think she did it did it better than anyone, right? Like I think you're right. Like that's an example, but just the way she would never use she never used jargon and she always her, her, even her sentences, right, were always meant to be invite, or, or are always meant to be inviting and, 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 and colloquial, right? Like it's hard to believe that she, like, English wasn't even, like English is maybe her third language. But she yeah. wrote, she didn't have anybody even edit it. She like wrote in just such a, she was able to capture a really colloquial way of, of talking about really hard arcane concepts, right? I think that that's, and I think that's absolutely requisite. Yeah, 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 and for for, for this public private, but yeah, go ahead. I, oh. I, I interrupted you. Yeah. Oh no, I was just wondering because uh, people have this, you know, whenever I bring up psychoanalysis, people are kind of like, oh, like it's you know, it's almost kind of like, oh, like you know, people right. don't want to sleep with their mothers. It's like oh, that's right. not what <laughs> it's about, right? It's like, right. Right. Uh, but also this idea that psychoanalysis is actually sort of like a private, uh, not in the sense of like you know, like maybe like an arcane vocabulary, but it's like, oh, it's just about you as an individual and as opposed right. to you as a social being. But I feel like uh, you in uh, in like capitalism and desire, you actually talk about sort of maybe in the, you talk about how that's actually not true, that like psychoanalysis actually kind of exposes our kind of, that even in our most private thing, desires, we are actually like social beings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really true. I think it's really true. And I think, I mean, that this idea uh, that our desire is the desire of the other, I think is that that's the idea, right? That, that it's that desire is already, it doesn't come first. This is the point that Wittgenstein makes, but not about desire, but about our, our feelings, right? Like that it doesn't first come from in here and then get expressed outside. It's first, we see the feeling where we see it, and then we start to take it on right so first it's public then it's private and i think that's a i think that's for psychoanalysis that's true about desire this is a funny story about Wittgenstein. so he saw his <laughs> he saw his brother i think his brother's named paul he was a great pianist mm -hmm. uh and he uh he was like looking over like studying the piano like really like totally into what he was doing and Wittgenstein said you know i want to be able to do that about something else and so wow. he took up this posture about thinking like that he mm -hmm. was totally absorbed by it and couldn't pay attention to anything else. But he was just, so he was just copying, just copying the things that he saw his brother that. doing with the piano. So it wasn't like, it's like, okay, it's not inauthentic, but it did, it comes from the public, comes from the other into him. And I think related to that is that the psychoanalytic session is itself not a private like this is a Marxist critique of psychoanalysis, but it's just this private individual thing doesn't have a but social relevance. But I think no, I think the whole point is, I think this is why the analyst doesn't. You don't look at the 
the the analyst Sam doesn't look at the analyst. Right. They, they, yeah. they're, they're sitting there in the, on the couch looking up yeah. at God knows what. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> crucial because it's, it's not this private. I think if you're looking, then it allow it can be private. Right. But if you're not looking face to face, then it's, it's public. You're all of a sudden, in the, I, you know, it's interesting because you, you've talked about why theory, but one of the things I like about it is that Ryan and I don't look at each other. So I feel like oh, there's really? always, no, we do, we tape, but we don't, uh, we just, ta- we just voice only. We don't Amazing. Have any, wow. Fascinating. We never see each other. Yeah. So, and, and then we, we've done it live a couple times, like sitting across the table. It just, we don't like it. So oh, it, wow. I feel like, yeah, yeah, it's true. Wow. So I feel like that the, there's a way in which there's a third, when we're just can't see each other, there's like a third party right. there. So I get this sense of the public much more than it, it, when I'm looking like it's a, it would be face to face. I really have to think about that. Now my whole, my whole, oh. my whole thing of why theory has changed. I'm like, now I always imagine you guys in the same room hanging out, but it, it brings up the fact that like over COVID I was seeing my therapist who's a psychoanalyst and, and uh, just talking on the phone. So it was the first right. time I wasn't going right. in person and I was walking around this uh, ping pong table for almost two years in quarantine. And I found myself being able to have way more free associative type conversations as I just walked and wasn't looking and right. I got to drift a little bit more in my thoughts. But yeah, I just, it's, it's really interesting that you guys are, do you, are you guys like on a phone call or something? How do you do it? Uh, Yeah. Well, we're, we're, yeah, we're recording two ends of a phone call. Okay. So, that's amazing. We record in GarageBand, and yeah, then yeah. I I edit the two voices together. And then, <laughs> wow, yeah. that's fascinating. You know, this what this brings to mind is kind of a tension that we often have as podcast hosts around. I bring in a lot of like um, we joke we call it like crowd language. Yeah. Like I'm often worried about hey if we talk about this, you know. I imagine I have a fantasy of a crowd, a fantasy of a mob, a fantasy of intimate friends who are going to be like, this thing was said that was weird. Like there's always, but we're here and there's also this tension of like, but we want to feel like relaxed in a way that we're like safe to have a conversation where you can be curious, like this private space that then we put out to the public. And I feel like that's this interesting thing with podcasts that there's this tension that people have. And I think that's why people listen to podcasts is, oh, I have friends that I listen to. And it's like, we know these people, but it's, and it's kind of in this tension of like, is this private in the public sector? Like what is it we're doing? Yeah, no, I think that, no, I think what you're, what you're putting your finger on, is absolutely the crucial thing, right? That that's why, I get emails all the time from people that write to me as if they know me. Well, and I don't, I don't think that's crazy. I mean, I think it's, I think that's a pretty normal response. It doesn't bother me at all. And I think in a way they do because like when you're, and I think this comes to this public private thing, right? Like in a way, like you're to do a podcast is to expose something, make it public, right? Like you're, you're saying like, you could just call the three of you could just sit there and have a private conversation, right? Like, yeah, right. But, but with the public dimension to it, you're like, you're, you're exposing it to something to the public. And I think that that there's a certain intimacy attached to that, that wouldn't otherwise be, be evident. I think, and I, I think that's actually like, I think that the proliferation of that is really a good, I, that seems to me like a really, I think certain social media things are pretty terrible, but I think like, proliferation of stuff on youtube is 
more or less pretty great. Like, I think there's stuff that I'm able to, like, I, I, I can watch the news in, in, from Paris and from Berlin, and it's, it's phenomenal, right? Like, I couldn't otherwise do that, and so that's cool. Uh, and, and, but, but podcasts, I think, are pretty great. I mean, I obviously am invested in them, <laughs> but I think they're pretty helpful because you get this precisely this connection to people that and so those are things that I think maybe came out of COVID that I sort Mm -hmm. of you know I think we started before COVID but I think that really uh everything got amplified at that time yeah no I was gonna say kind of like I I uh we know that you're like uh, friends with uh Zizek and that he's almost kind of like um he is sort of like an I mean there are so many memes or like compilations of like Slavo Zizek being himself for six minutes and it's just like a super cut of him you know like saying things that are like kind of funny out of context and it's like everyone knows who he is now because you know because of the internet <laughs> yeah, I know I, I can't believe how I you know I've been out with him to lunch or whatever and people like a number of people will come up and ask him for his autograph That's or to awesome. take a selfie it's a, it's kind of incredible like just just in like in Los Angeles or Boston or where, you know, so it's here in Vermont, less so, I guess, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that's happened, but uh, I, so I don't know. I, I think that that's, yeah, I think he, I don't know what happened with that. I think, I do think that there's as maybe this is wrong, but I feel like as um, theory has been kind of more marginalized within the Academy, that there's been this kind of proliferation of sites that are relatively external to the academy of people that are just interested and just like Mm -hmm. on their own and i think that's so i think part of this those memes and things are are are, are, that 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 his popularity stems from people that aren't necessarily academics but are just Mm -hmm. find something appealing about his attempt to explain the world and then he's like kind of you know he's obviously funny and and those sort of things and that but yeah i I don't know I, i mean he it's so it's so strange to me because he could if he had to do any of that himself he couldn't I mean he wouldn't even be able to put out a a, a YouTube video right, right. no right. idea you can imagine him <laughs> creating no a idea. YouTube channel yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean I mean I don't know if you've you've seen this but this is like unintentionally hilarious and I like that he just pops up at like the most random but he he got invited I think he is basically sharing a stage with like a YouTube sort of like self help guru who was guiding everyone through like a oh let's do a guided meditation and he's also sitting there and he's clearly not doing it right. <laughs> he's yeah. like scribbling on the notes and everyone's like yeah. was that the thing with he with destiny yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. he's just kind of like that yeah, was i don't think he's ever done any kind of meditation oh but i feel like uh okay but uh you know just a little because he's such a big name, you know, so I'm kind of like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but do you think like, so, you know, the podcast is obviously called Why Theory and yeah. we would recommend, well, I would, I'll just speak for myself. Well, I, I would highly recommend it to everyone who's like interested in theory, but wouldn't, do, do you see some similarity between sort of like uh, psych- psychoanalysis being accused of just sort of like a private language and then a theory being sort of like also like yeah it's just like what people in the academics talk about but you're you're actually the podcast i mean the format but also like the the way you you present your ideas the topics you choose you are trying to make a case for like no 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 theory should have like a public it should have like a you know like a social no absolutely absolutely but i do that's that's totally our point totally our point um but i think you're right like there is a 
we blend the two maybe than more than they're blended psychoanalysis and theory like for us those are kind of synonyms but obviously theory is a wider category uh but i think you're right that there, there's a sense that it's like too private or i had a i have a colleague here who said to me well theory is just for elitist guys mm-hmm. and i said well that'll be a surprise to all the women i know that are like yeah. totally <laughs> invested here i said and then i said well it's interesting because Today, like of the top 10 Hegel scholars, like maybe eight are women, uh, you know, of the top people in psychoanalysis, Lacan, it's, it's clear that like, like other than Slavoj, it's mostly women. I mean, so it, that seemed like a pretty, and then of course, in like the Foucauldian side, Judith Butler is probably the dominant figure. Yeah. So I, I thought that was a kind of, a, I shouldn't, it was kind of a dumb comment, but I do think that, <laughs> I don't think it was, I thought it was revelatory though, because I think that is the, that speaks to what you're talking about. It's like this private language, bunch of elitist guys have it and they're just, but I think that that's, that seems completely wrong to me. And, and I, as you said, like part of our, I don't know if we have a mission, but if our mission in why theory would be to dispel that, to say, no, we're, it's something accessible for everyone. And, and, and we try to, I mean, in, in a way, I think someone like Mari Scott mentioned earlier, like that's the, she's like a, the, you know, like what she did in her books, we're trying to do in our, mm. in our program or our show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I experienced something through Peter initially, which was something like pop academia or something like that. Like to say, you know, we're going to go have fun and drink and watch plays and, and hear from these people in a different kind of context. It's not the classroom. And for me personally, can think, thinking of why theory, um, I think, Peter sort of pulled me out gently over time out of Christianity and into something else. I mean, introducing me to people like you or Jameson Webster or whoever it was. And mostly it was just me sitting down and watching these quirky little YouTube videos he was making. And it was usually terribly shot. He was usually just waking up and he was in a bathrobe and he's got his coffee and he's like explaining something about Hegel. And I'm just like, I don't even know who Hegel is, but I just get to sit and watch it over and over again to the point where now I'm kind of actually learning and now I get to go meet other people. And, uh, that, that really worked for me. And I just think it's a beautiful thing in the sense that, uh, anybody that would want to have access to that type of content, uh, wouldn't have to necessarily go get a master's degree or pay the money. You can just go do it. But you, and right, you right. I think those two things are key, Scott, right? You don't have to go to get some institutional support and it's not, it's free, right? Like yeah. you know, all you do is listen to some stupid ad. Yeah. On YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that that's, I think that's crucial. Right. And I think that, you know, it's true for even me. Like I find, I find, you know, access to contemporary, certain contemporary thinkers. Like I can, I can listen to some, I've been listening, I've been listening to this guy, Marcus Gabriel is a contemporary, like uh, realist, philosopher uh from germany and i've been i've been doing the elliptical and listen to him so i i think that you know to me that's just it's great it's like a just a pure and, and i think it's an even more important because our time has become so much more circumscribed right it's like it's much harder to read a book today than it was even when i was a kid like i i, I even myself i mean i think of myself as like a ferocious reader but i don't i read much less than i did before because there's just so much more things going on Right. So I, I think that, yeah, yeah. Oh no, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was done. No, I, I would attest to this. I mean, you know, like 
what I was telling, I was telling my, 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 you know, like other friends in grad school recently, it's like, I feel like the one thing that grad school keeps you from doing is reading. <laughs> That's because, incredible, right? Like I, because yeah. when I, it's just different than when I was there, because I was in grad school in the 90s, right? And, and I read, so I read so much. And not only that, but my friend and I, when we taught like freshman comp or whatever, we're like, we're not doing it like they want us to. We're going to have them read one novel a week. So our students, regardless of the length. So sometimes they'd read like a 350 page novel. That was their, and we had to read it too. And we were taking two classes. Like one time I had, my assignment was one week I had to read Tom Jones. Oh my God. Which is like, you know, 800 page novel, whatever. And I had, and I was also teaching, like, I don't know, I was probably teaching Sound and the Fury in my class or whatever. I had them read that in a week. So it was just, it was like a crazy thing, but it, it, I think it was not unthinkable, right? We did it. And so, I just think that's so different than today. I think yeah. there's so much other stuff going on in graduate school, but also for professors. And it's just all the stuff that is in the way of that. So I think that that's why I think this, this other kind of thing that we were talking about, Scott, like I think that's kind of, that, it's nice that that exists because reading has become so much more difficult. This that's is coming from somebody that, that reads more than anybody I've ever, I mean, we live with Reuven and, he's reading morning to night and and in the midst of all the theory and other philosoph- philosophical books i mean ruben will just go i think i'm gonna read david copperfield this week I'm like okay great that's <laughs> just, a good choice i know yeah, yeah. See that there? let's just say something about that so i got like three two, three years ago i got into this really dickens i like and mm. I, I i i david copperfield it was freud's favorite is my favorite yeah, yeah. uh but but uh i i just i like i i thought i'm just going to read all of dickens but i've gotten i've gotten sidetracked i've gotten derailed because i'm like well this book is due at the press or i got to do it something and then so I, I don't know i just i haven't i haven't done it so that's that's depressing to me but i, I hopefully you'll you'll do it yeah <laughs> it's an invitation yeah, yeah no i guess i mean it's it's almost like structured into the way academic books are written and it's almost in you know, I have this, I, I like to tell, you know, because I'm a literature scholar, so I'll, I always kind of like to like, you know, like puff up literature. Speak, but I tell people like, you know, like these books these days, you know, like coming out of Duke, like they're usually written, I feel like people read the introductions and then they can care less about the chapters because all literally all you want, the graduate students are told to want is just like a quote, right? A quote or two right, that you can right. put in your writing. But in, in a way, like literature is almost like the anti- or even maybe, I don't know, something like Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, because you kind of have to go through it to, like, you know, you can say that I've read the introduction to this book, and you can sort of say that, like, I've read the book, I've gotten the idea, right. but you can't right. just read, like, the first two chapters of David Copperfield and say you've read David right. Copperfield. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah. No, that's so great. You're right. That's what's great about a novel, right? Like, you can't, like, one of my students was so into this, do you know this novel, Infinite Jest? Yeah. David Foster. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was dude, totally into it. They were like, I can't believe you haven't read it. <laughs> it's like a thousand pages, yeah. right? And so that's why I haven't read it. But uh, but I, I but I, I I I would like to just read like the preface and sort of yeah. get it, but I but you can't, right? Like you have yeah. to you read have to the, whole thing. the whole thing. Yeah. No, that's so sort that's, of also a Lacanian meme too. Like uh I mean, who who are the people that have read Infinite Jest? Because I think I kept it in my bookshelf just to have people maybe think <laughs> it you know <laughs> right i know i know i know that's true infinite jest is one of those books yeah. like like i have for some reason i have like all of pension but 
I stopped after Gravity's Rainbow. I didn't read any of yes, the later yes. ones. But they people see them up there like, wow, you've read like against the day. I'm like, I know. It's just there. <laughs> I literally have tried a few times and I've I, I read novels, but I've started Infinite Jest. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I know. I know a lot of people for whom that's true. That, yeah. that they've started it and they didn't. And then I know other people that have read the whole thing are like, yeah, it's dis- it's not, it doesn't reward it. It's so, it's like Christmas morning. Yeah. 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 That's right. And I, and, and, but the person, it's always students that love it. I have one student that read Infinite Jest, reread it every new year. That's, wow. It says something about like, that. That's person. impressive. Yeah. That's but, very but, impressive. But, but then it makes me think, like, I don't know. You could be reading, like, all of Dickens. And yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like this is an unintentional segue, because I didn't mean to bring up David Copperfield, but in the spirit of, like, the Christmas conversation, uh, I know you guys were sort of alluding to, you know, A Christmas Carol being almost the blueprint for all of modern Christmas. But I do wonder for you personally, if you have a favorite version of a modern iteration of A Christmas Carol, like, a movie. So I know you guys talked about Scrooge, but there's yeah. so many versions of that story. So many. I know. I know. Uh, I like, <laughs> my, my, here, I like Scrooge quite a bit. I yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think my guiltiest pleasure would be, do you know this one? Ghosts of Christmas past ghosts of girlfriends past. No, no. <laughs> so I think it's with that? Matthew McConaughey. Okay. And he gets visited He's like a, I think it's a little, I think he's similar to, to Bill Murray, like a, some kind of executive that's a yeah. scum. And he gets visited by past, he's like used these women, you know, he's been terrible to women. And he he gets, he gets uh, visited by these past, mm-hmm. I think it's called Gir- Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but that would be, I, I, I mean, I know, I mean, the best one is the, there's the fi- early 50s one. Yeah. Uh, which which I, th- I think it's just called. It might be called Scrooge, right? Or or Christmas. I, 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 you guys referenced my my Scrooge growing up was the Albert Finney musical, and I think that one one, is yeah. called Scrooge. Yeah. Um, and I, the other one I think you're referencing, I think, is called A Christmas Carol. But I, I could get it right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's a good there's a George C. Scott one from the early '80s that's, yeah. that's good. I think the 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 Muppet Christmas Carol is good too. Yeah, I think they're. I mean, we're going to do sometime a whole Christmas Carol episode because, yeah, there are just so many. It's, you know, I don't really, I love Dickens. It's not my favorite Dickens, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so slim, too. It's not even, yeah. it's not no, even, it's, a, even, it, it, it's not, what is it, even a novella? I mean, I guess it's between right. a short story and a novella, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really captured the collective consciousness, imagination yeah. of some, some kind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually, yeah, it's, I've actually never read it. My first Dickens was now that we're well, I don't know, are we on Dickens? <laughs> well, that's sure, the, sure. The, yeah. the, sure. The first Dickens because you know, growing up, there was only like one bookstore that sells English books, and it's like an, an English you know, I grew up in this city called Surabaya in Indonesia, and it's by no means a small city, but there's only this one bookstore and it's an airport books. I mean, you know, I grew up reading Twilight. Because there's not nothing else to read. Nothing else to read. Yeah. yeah. But one day, just like this tattered copy of Bleak House showed up, and no one else was gonna get it, so I bought it. And I was like in ninth grade, and you know, I was. I mean, English is sort of I don't know, like maybe like a one and a half, not not exactly a first language, not exactly a second language, because I grew up yeah. learning it, uh, and I understood maybe like forty percent of that book because it's like all just legal. I mean. 
I it's like, a lot of legal stuff, yeah. Yeah, but it's like a lot of just like, oh, like the court case never ends. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> that could I love be teach English. That could be, the, yeah, I like that. That could be the uh, part of me thinks, I don't, I didn't enjoy it the most, but part of me thinks like that's maybe one of the greatest novels ever written. Mm. Maybe the greatest novel written in English, you know, like I wow. think it really, big words. because this, I know it's probably, I mean, whatever. <laughs> Moby Dick, I should, yeah. 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 Uh, but that's but, the right answer. Sound and fury. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, yeah, those are the right. Uh, but I think it's, uh, I think what it does, like the way it alternates between first and third person, which comes back to this whole public private discussion we're having, right? Like, like it doesn't it try to show how you, each of those fail in a certain mm. way to get you the, the, the experience like, of, of uh, Britain at the time. And so, uh, it, it has to go back and forth to show to like contrast these two failures. And then that's the really the experience of the novel is sort of these both. And I think it's, it, it's sort of between the turn to the modern, like the first person modern novel. And then the, it's the end of the Victorian. I mean, I know he wrote novels after that, but it's the, sort of the end of the Victorian um, third person novel. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know. I find something about that, the way it's working between those two perspectives pretty great like you can't as if like to really get the how uh, human, human society works you have to you have to both see that to come at it from the perspective of a subject but also recognize that mm. there's something missing in that perspective and that's the object and but or the the societal look itself the real the third person but then that there's something missing in that and those two mm. what's missing in each doesn't line up Right. Yeah. So it's only you only see that the way they don't line up when you alternate back and forth. I don't know. This is my little. That's great. Theory and, about it. and that so. book ends with the dash, right? Kind of like. Yeah. 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 So it fits kind of in yeah. that. that yeah. Thing. yeah. I mean, the only thing is people don't like about it because the older guy marries Esther right at the end. And so it's I think it's it's not. And that does seem weird to me. It's not a it's like a little Harold and Maude, although. Right. If Maude was the guy. Right. <laughs> I love Harold, Harold and Maude. Yeah, no, Harold and Maude are great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, there's a, you know, this, uh, there's a film right now out by Todd Haynes, a great filmmaker, on, on not Harold and Maude exactly, but about Mary Kay Letourneau, the older woman who right. seduced the young, uh, right. her student, yeah. and went to jail. But it's with Julian Moore play. It, it's not a, they don't use her name, but plays yeah. the Mary Kay Letourneau figure. And then, Natalie Portman is this actor playing her, and so they oh, there's this whole interaction. It's oh, I, I think it's good. I think it's quite good. I've seen the trailers for that. Yeah, yeah. that's a like Netflix or something. Ma Mary yeah. Kay Letourneau. That that word was that that name was in every household in oh, the nineties. Really? Yeah. yeah, it was. It was huge. Yeah, yeah. in like the nineties, right? Like yeah, it was, it was quite a while ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was born in the nineties. Exactly. Just in high school. Well, I think yeah. I think I think everybody was like warning of yeah don't don't get seduced yeah by, by your teacher. teacher. Well, it was, plus it was so weird because it like Harold and Maude it flipped the ages right like mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. like usually we're so used to the male teachers seducing the yeah. sexually assaulting the yeah. younger girl, but this was the reverse. Yeah, and then they married subsequently. Right, just you know crazy. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I, There's so many things we could do about film. I'm like, oh, 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 oh. I got to restrain myself. Um, I'll say I'm not, uh, I haven't read much Dickens. All I remember is high school. I read Dickens in high school. I read Such Great Heights. Yeah, that's uh, another class. Or wait, Great Expectations. 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 Great expectations.
Yeah, yeah that's another one. Yeah. Together. That was good. Yeah. There it is. But I think as you were talking, it makes me think of, you know, I there's this phrase that I really as a as a therapist think about this idea of like mental health as a back and forth. Like we, you know, or you know, existence is the back and forth. You know, it's the actual substance of life is between desire and satisfaction is between the subjective and the object. It's not the the places, but it's actually what happens in that interaction. I think that's what you're saying about what makes that book so powerful yeah. is that it's actually getting at that, you know, existence is more about that movement between these mm -hmm. places. Absolutely right. Absolutely mm -hmm. right. Right. Like there's some, like the in between is where that's where the, the our whatever our our like uh the, the, the that's what we find rewarding about our existence right like or what we find mm -hmm. worthwhile about it right and without yeah, that yeah. like and, and if you were on either side then there's there's just, it's just it's, it's vacant right like mm -hmm. there's nothing to it so it's only in that point of interaction that can't be reduced to either perspective and that and that each, in a certain way but the perspectives don't their failure to line up is what creates that that yeah. that interstitial point that yeah. is, is so crucial. Yeah, totally. So what we're saying is Christmas Eve is the real enjoyment. <laughs> That's right. No, I think it's absolutely true. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. absolutely true. I mean, I always if I think back on my life like that, I mean, when I was a kid now, I would say, but that were those were the greatest. Yeah, times, right? like, I could just, never you know, sleep. Just, I could never sleep on Christmas Eve. I'm I so excited. So yeah. excited. That, that was Scott. Same thing true for me. And I, <laughs> I, I now, unfortunately, I've translated Christmas Eve into everyday yeah. existence. So now yeah. I don't sleep during the regular days. <laughs> <laughs> it was the same kind of. It was the same kind of like that was. I was so excited, and now I don't know. I, uh, I'm now. I, I, my, I'm just like completely like I'm. I'm. I'm like I don't think I've slept in like five nights. Like I'm just. I've, I've translated that kind of uh, that's, that's amazing craziness. To, well, to I, I that that I know we're, we should start winding down, but I mean, a genuine question I'd have for you, Todd, is um, you do seem like a person that's so full of wonder and enthusiasm. Like you, you don't seem cynical or something like that. Like you, you're so you, you really do enjoy these conversations and the work that you do, and it's really inspiring. Yeah, no, absolutely true. Absolutely yeah. true. I'm, 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 I'm. I'm not, I, that is true about the cynicism. Like I'm absolutely yeah. not cynical about, right, about right. things or the world. And like, I even like, uh, I, I just watched, uh, something like I think it's called your Christmas or mine last night. Like I, I, I'm fine with that. Like I'm yeah. fine with like a, I just taught a class on love and the romantic comedy. And one of the students at the end, they were like, I'm like, what would you do differently? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and one student said, well, I don't know that I would change anything, but, uh, you might have one person that we read that's sort of, a little skeptical about love because everyone we read like yeah, yeah. love great love great <laughs> uh and so i thought that was a criticism but that speaks to what you're saying like I, I i don't think in those like i believe totally in love i believe like i'm not i'm just not cynical about and, and like about intellectual theoretical mm. inquiry like i'm just all for it like i just think it's and, and it, i find it, it fuels me in a way so yeah it's really contagious i mean what was what was the dickens book you were talking about that you read when you were younger? Bleak House. Bleak House. Bleak House. I was thinking, um, some of the big two takeaways from for our listeners today would be like these two recommendations, which would be Bleak House 
and then Girlfriends of Christmas Past. <laughs> that's, like, that's a little bit of the different let's flavors. Not, let's not put those on the same level. <laughs> that are our lesson. Yeah. <laughs> that's what is like the banality of, of, uh, of contemporary society yeah. and the other one. Yeah. yeah, that was a total curveball yeah. of an answer. Yeah, no, but oh, I, I, when I was listening to your, and you know, uh, I realized that we we're kind of like running out of time, so this can be my last contribution. But when you were talking about uh, White Christmas, oh right, think, yeah. I mean, I have no problem whatsoever enjoying quote unquote problematic works of art. Like one of my favorite operas is Madame Butterfly, and that's like right, right. Rat racist, maybe only when sung by Maria Callas, but like, <laughs> I, I, but you know, like, so I, I, you know, but so, but the funny, the funny thing about uh, Bing, Bing Crosby was that I don't know if you know this, but he was hired by the CIA or the FBI at one point to direct like a fake porno about the first president of Indonesia. So he was, oh my god, yeah, he was hired to it's like his name is Sukarno. It's like you know I, we want you to make a like a fake as if it's like a sukarno having sex with like a white woman sex tape and the funny thing is that a lot of like you know like indonesianists would say kind of like well those people don't understand that if that tape that that tape was never made i think if that tape got out that would just actually make sukarno more likable more likable yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah but Whenever I think of Bing Crosby and, you know, like White Christmas, the song is played everywhere, I think of like, hmm, Sukarno porno. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a great, that's a great connection. Yeah. Great I, association. Yeah, I, You're not going to lull me into your nostalgia with this man's voice. <laughs> I know what's really going on. You know, I don't want to be too cynical. bad it was never made, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, maybe it would, you know, maybe that would have saved him from the coup. <laughs> yeah. Or they could have done White Christmas over the top of the the sex thing that would have been cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Audio like track. yeah i think it says in the note like he's like hire like a hispanic man like to play a card oh my god <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I would just love the idea of the podcast just ending right there right like, no, no explanation. Like, you know this one about christmas and then it's but in in terms of christmas it does remind me of one of the strangest things that has emerged or the culture has decided to sort of draw out of memories of distant christmas past because there is a really strange uh, Christmas special where Bing Crosby is singing with David Bowie, the little drummer boy. Do you know about that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it. No, not at all. It's just I will, maybe I don't know. I want to like, like send Todd the YouTube link later. But like, yeah, send me the link. Yeah, that's it's just great. it's just yeah. David Bowie in his prime, just kind of all glammed up. But they yeah. juxtapose it with Bing, Bing Crosby, Crosby. <laughs> like inviting him into his home with a roaring fire, and they kind of have this conversation, and they sing, "Well, let's sing a tune together," and they sing "Little Drummer Boy." It's like just is the, it faked or is it real? It's real. No, it's totally real. They really did oh, this wow. it, at a certain wow. season of life. Bing Crosby seemed like he was probably like. 80 mm -hmm. and it's just the strangest yeah. pairing but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just free associating with being crosby <laughs> no i love that idea yeah that's great um yeah. dang well todd this was so fun i was just so oh. grateful that you said yes yeah this is oh, really yeah. cool of course i would say yes this was yeah. amazing thank you so much for having me well, I, I, I hope we have you on again someday when time allows. Yeah, I'd be happy to come on anytime. Really, yeah. really fun conversations. Yeah. Even in a non Christmas season, I would be yeah. happy to do it. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. You have a next book right, to promote. Yeah. Come on over. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to promote my book. There's <laughs>
You're, you're known for these big giant book promotion tours, aren't you? I know that's true. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm always pushing my things. I really <laughs> try to contain my. Cool. Things. All right. All right. Thanks, All right. Have the rest of your day. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.